Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It is the first day of Black History Month. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Or as, or as Ron DeSantis calls it, month. Oh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're going to get to what's happening uh, down in Florida. There you see Caitlin is live on Capitol Hill for us. President Biden on the Hill this morning as he faces a series of investigations and battles over the nation's economy and police reform. Also, moments from now, the GOP is gearing up to kick Congressman Ilhan Omar off of a key committee Big questions on whether or not they have enough votes. They believe they do, but they faced some pushback from Republicans. Also, Hunter Biden with a counteroffensive. The president's son demanding investigations into those who access data from his personal laptop. What is behind this really aggressive new legal strategy? We're going to get to all of that in a moment, but we're going to begin with breaking news. It's out of Ukraine. CNN is live in the southern city of Kherson, where there is heavy shelling this morning. Live to Sam Kiley. Sam, hello to you. What are you hearing? Well, hearing is uh, quite literally what we've been doing, hearing and cowering along with uh, the rest of the population of Kherson. About every five to ten minutes, I'd say, we can hear a barrage, usually of uh, Grad missiles being fired from the Russian-controlled side of the river. Where I'm standing here is in Freedom Square. This was where, you'll remember, there were those enormous celebrations uh, just a few months ago when this city was liberated from Russian occupation. The Russians are about 500 meters in that direction, straight down the main drag on the other side of the river, and they're firing into the town very regularly, direct fire with... Um, there you go, those are two detonations. Direct fire with either tanks uh, or uh, sometimes indirect fire with mortars. A lot of multiple rocket launching systems. Last night, two people, according to the local authorities, were killed in <clears throat> on the outskirts of the city. That has become all too routine. And rather than being a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a city that is thronged with people celebrating their liberation, most people here have been asked to leave. Those that remain behind really only turn up in this central area seeking help. We've spoken to half a dozen people, mostly old people, but some of them mothers of, of young children who are in areas that are too dangerous, frankly, for the emergency services to even get to, asking us for help, asking us to direct them as to where they might get food, water, and other supplies. Okay. So uh, <laughs> there, you see our Sam Kiley's on the ground in her zone where heavy shelling is going on. Sam, for how long has this... Uh, been happening. It seems quiet where you are, but is this intermittent? <clears throat> it's anything but quiet. It just doesn't ha happen to have gone off. In fact, it did go off uh, at the beginning of our live. It may well go off again. We are a little bit away from the main focus of the shelling because it's extremely dangerous, but uh, it's been going on like this for several months and escalating very significantly. 
Okay. Sam Kiley, we will check back with you. Thank you very much. It's happening out of yeah. that war. Been, you know, has been almost, going a year. almost a you year. You were now. there. Yeah. So we'll check back in with our uh, reporters and producers uh, in Ukraine. As we mentioned, it's a very busy morning on Capitol Hill. You see Caitlin there. The president will be attending the national prayer breakfast, but a lot going on in the, on in the background. It's one of the busiest days, I believe. Yeah, it's going to be busy. This is President Biden's first time here on the Hill as we were seeing all of these debt talks, uh, debt ceiling talks going on. You saw that rare meeting that he had with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House yesterday. It was about 90 minutes long, actually. And they had been jousting going into that meeting. But you saw Kevin McCarthy emerge with a much different tone coming out of it, saying he is optimistic that they can find some common ground. He said, Don and Poppy, it's really just the first in a series of meetings that they are likely to have on this. But despite that optimism, there are still really big questions because one is this demand from Republicans that they cut spending in order to raise the debt ceiling. The question is, where are those cuts going to come from? And Kevin McCarthy has said, you know, not Medicare, not Social Security, but still big questions about defense and other areas that they would try to cut from. And I think the biggest question that a lot of Hill reporters up here have is whether or not even if the president and Kevin McCarthy come to a deal, is that something that he can get the Republican conference to get behind, to vote for? Because, of course, we've seen how divided they are. We saw that speaker fight play out. So I think big questions about that. We'll also see this morning if President Biden talks about uh, police reform while he's here on Capitol Hill, those conversations that have been a focus since what we saw happening in Memphis with Tyree Nichols. And so I think those are uh, just two aspects of a lot that's going on here in Washington. In addition to that search yesterday of the president's Rehoboth Beach home by the Justice Department for more classified documents, we, sh- we should note his attorney says they did not find. Caitlin? We saw, oh, I'm sorry. Go, no, no so we saw Kevin McCarthy, you saw the video of him oh, leaving yeah. yesterday. And I thought, happy. What I thought was um, interesting is that he said, I'm not, I don't want to share much. He got a lengthy press conference, but he said, I don't want to share much of my conversation with the president, which right. I thought was very good. Yeah, true. Until keep we it. see what works out. Yeah, keep it tight. I was just going to ask, Caitlin, before you go, I was just thinking about sort of what happened in 2011 when it was then Vice President Biden leading those negotiations with Republicans in the House, with Speaker Boehner, with Eric Cantor, and sort of what came from that and where we ended up. They had sort of this dollar for dollar spend and cut deal. And then it ends in sequestration eventually. And, you know, just lessons from that and how that has informed uh, all the failures eventually from that and how that has informed Biden's position now. We talk about what this would mean for the average American, how it would really put the United States on the breach of a crisis when it comes uh, to the U.S. economy, if it actually came to that over the summer. You know, technically, they've already hit the limit, but they've got a few emergency measures that the Treasury Department is working. And you've heard Republicans say that, yeah, you know, when Biden was vice president, he was involved in these negotiations. But of course, he was vice president then. The White House's stance has been they're not going to negotiate over the debt ceiling per se. If they have other talks going on on the sidelines of where they could go after spending, that remains to be seen. But certainly that is an experience that has shaped uh, how Republicans are viewing this, how the White House is viewing this. But it's a very different White House and a very different Republican Party that is at these talks right now. And very different when you're the actual president. Totally. Right, and new president. rules in the House, right? So, Caitlin, thank we'll you. We'll see you in a bit. Um, So the American economy, we were just talking about how the debt ceiling plays into all of that, is at a critical point. Let's take a look at some key economic indicators, where things stand right now. Just at a glance, there is an increase in job openings. The Fed did raise its benchmark interest rate for the eighth time in a year yesterday, signaling a few more increases likely ahead. President Biden, as we said, met with Leader McCarthy, talking about the debt ceiling. And McDonald's, right? Sometimes a bellwether for the economy. Reported a big increase in sales and revenue in the fourth quarter of the year. A lot of people opting in for less expensive food because of a possible recession. Maybe that's it. 
Chrissy Romans, our chief business correspondent, here to help break it down. Hey. What do eight all times. of these eight, eight, eight times? Eight times. And and can eight I tell year. you the twenty-five basis points last March, and then just a steady increase again and again, and then twenty-five basis points uh, yesterday. The Fed chief said there's more to be done, but inflation is starting to turn. That really put it in perspective when Poppy said eight times. It's like, wow, has it in been a year? In one year. And can I show you, like, so now you've got official interest rates that are knocking on the door of five percent. But it's so interesting because banks' savings rates are still just, on average, under 1%. So savers really haven't been, you know, felt the boon of those higher interest rates. But if you borrow money, you've really felt the pain of them. And that is just an unfortunate way the system seems to be working here. But there it is. Look at how the federal funds rate has gone up. But the money you get from putting your money in a bank hasn't really, unless you have a lot of cash and then people are sort of searching for yield. There was another number we saw yesterday that really got my attention. 11 million open jobs in America. 11 million. That's help wanted signs in leisure and hospitality, in construction, um, in hotels. That's two open jobs for every person looking for one. So when we've heard so much about tech layoffs, you guys, this tells you that employers don't want to let go of people and they want to hire good people if they can. So mm. that's a good position to come from heading into what could be an uncertain year, I think. Yeah, for sure. All right. We'll see you soon. Okay. <laughs> it could be another rate hike in this broadcast. We'll see. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it, Christine Romans. More charges could be coming in Memphis following the death of Tyree Nichols. The Shelby County District Attorney is looking at potential charges over the initial police report that he says contradicts what the videos depict. It's fair to say that... Um, the uh, incident report that has gone uh, public does not match up uh, on all fours with what one sees when one looks at the video that's already been released. Well, this is coming as hundreds more nickels at his emotional funeral service on Wednesday, including the vice president, Kamala Harris, and the Reverend Al Sharpton. Straight now to CNN's Ryan Young, live in Memphis. Ryan, good morning to you. A very emotional day yesterday, yet the investigation morning, continues. Can you tell us what the DA is saying and who may be the target of these potential charges? Don, they are going to go through all that video to make sure that everyone who was involved in that scene actually will face charges if they need to. There's an administrative procedural um, investigation going on at the police department. Then the TBI is doing a separate investigation. But all eyes yesterday were on the family of Tyree Nichols. Tyree was a beautiful person. And for this to happen to him, it's just unimaginable. A goodbye to a beloved son. Moving tributes. Don't give up the fight. And a call for change. We have to fight for justice. We cannot continue to let these people brutalize our kids. Grieving family and friends celebrating the life of Tyree Nichols today. I promise you the only thing that's keeping me going it's the fact that I really truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment yes, <laughs> from God. I see the world showing him love and fighting for his justice. But all I want is my baby brother back. I'm just trying to go home. Mm-hmm. Don't I deserve to feel safe? A young father, artist, and avid skateboarder who died after a violent encounter with Memphis police. This is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet 
of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. A service painfully familiar for black communities in America. We serve notice to this nation that the rerun of this episode that makes Black Lives hashtags has been canceled and will not be renewed for another season. The videos of the brutal police beating were released less than a week ago, and more videos of the incident are expected to be released soon. The city of Memphis saying it's preparing to release the recordings once an administrative investigation is complete and that the Nichols family and their attorneys have already seen the audio and video footage. There's uh, a lot of uh, footage, maybe as much as uh, 20 hours, um, and some of it I think may be more relevant because of the audio, and then a lot of it uh, depicts things that take place, you know, after the uh, the beating has already occurred and, you know, a People are uh, sort of talking afterwards, even after the ambulance takes Mr. Nichols away. The Shelby County District Attorney's Office tells CNN that the office is continuing to investigate potential charges on false reporting on the initial police report, since it contradicts some of the events at the scene as seen in the video released by police. They are continuing to examine possible charges for, quote, every other officer and fire department personnel at the scene. But even as questions in this case linger, the call for change is clear. We're going to change this country because we refuse to keep living under the threat of the cops and the robbers. Don, something that stood out to me yesterday watching this funeral was the role that women were playing in this funeral. You think about his mom stepping up and giving that emotional speech, his sister, and then all the other mothers who showed up who also had sons or daughters who were victims of uh, what they call police brutality was something to see. And not to mention the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, playing a big role as well, Ryan Young. Ryan in Memphis. Thank you, Ryan. Nice job. Appreciate it. Well, testimony resumes this morning in Alex Murdoch, Alec Murdoch's double murder trial in South Carolina. In court Wednesday, prosecutors presented pivotal evidence, a cell phone video they say undercuts his alibi the night his wife and son were brutally murdered. Our Randy Kay is covering the trial. She joins us live again this morning from Walterboro, South Carolina. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Poppy. That's right. Alec Murdoch has always said that he wasn't at the dog kennels on the property earlier in the night at the time of the murders. He said he was napping. But now there's this cell phone video from his own son's cell phone that seems to put him right there. So the question for the jury is, if he was there, why did he say he wasn't? Give it. This is the video prosecutors believe puts Alec Murdoch at the murder scene around the time his wife and son were killed. A computer crimes expert testifying for the state said he extracted this video from Paul Murdoch's phone several months after his death. The video shows a dog, but it's not what the jury sees on the video that is critical to the state's case. It's what they hear on it. What do you hear in the video? You hear three different voices in the video. Um, you can tell because they're so different, you can tell that they're different voices. Listen closely. And at this time, State's going to publish that video. It is not under seal. Post it. Get Hey, he's got a bird in his mouth. Bubba. Hey, Bubba. It's a guinea. This is a chicken. The time that the video was taken is key to the prosecutor's case. What time is that video recorded again, Lieutenant Duff? The camera begins at 8.44, 49 p.m. And ends when? 
at 8.45-47 p.m. The witness told the jury the video was taken about 8.45 p.m. on June 7, 2021, the night of the murders. Alec Murdoch had told investigators at least twice that he wasn't at the kennels earlier in the night. His 911 call that night puts him at the scene at around 10.07 p.m. But the audio in this video, if it's him as prosecutors suggest, would undercut his alibi and put Alec Murdoch with the victims at the time of the murders, at the time their cell phone ceased all activity and locked. That was about 8.49 p.m. Were there ever any other outgoing calls made from Paul's phone? No, sir, not that I found. Were there ever any other calls that were answered, incoming calls that were answered on Paul's phone? No, sir. Alec Murdoch was not identified by prosecutors on the video, but this witness, Rogan Gibson, testified that Paul was sending the video in question to him that night so Gibson could see his injured dog. He told the court he's sure that's Alec Murdoch's voice on the recording. And did you hear, recognize the voices on there? I did. Did you recognize the voices of your second family? I did. And what voices did you hear? Paul's, Miss Maggie, Miss Alec. And how sure are you now? Positive. 100 percent? That's correct. On cross-examination, the defense tried to chip away at Gibson's testimony about the tape, but it seemed to backfire. Then you heard a voice say, no, it's a chicken. Do you remember whose voice that was? It was Mr. Alex that said it the first time, and then Paul also said it was a chicken. And it only got worse for the defense when Paul's longtime friend and roommate, Will Loving, said he heard Alec on the recording, too. How sure are you? 100%. The person whose voice you recognize on there that you identified as Alec Murdoch, do you see him in the courtroom here today? Um, yes, sir. Can you point him out for the jury? He's sitting right there. And Poppy, whatever happened that night happened very, very fast. We know that video was recorded about 8.45 p.m. We also know from testimony that Paul Murdoch read a text at 8.48.59 p.m. And then just 36 seconds later, Poppy, he got another text that was never read, his phone. And it seems Paul Murdoch had been silent forever. Wow. Randy Kay, what a day in court. Thank you very much. Well, an FBI search for President Biden's beach home turns up empty-handed. Where will this investigation over those classified documents go from here now that a special counsel has officially started on the job? Plus, he is a veteran who accused George Santos of stealing donations for his dying dog. And now the feds are on the case. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right, good morning from Capitol Hill. As the president is getting ready to come visit over here this morning for the National Prayer Breakfast, the FBI finding no classified documents after they completed a search at President Biden's private vacation home in Rehoboth, Delaware, on Wednesday. This, as the president's handling of classified material has continued to dog the White House. I don't want to speak too much to the DOJ's practices in an ongoing investigation. So I can say, you know, that that we have cooperated fully. The president's personal attorneys have provided information to DOJ. We've addressed openly and directly the uh, searches that were conducted uh, first at the president's Wilmington residence and then today uh, at the Rehoboth residence. Cena's Paula Reed is joining us now here this morning. I mean, this is the third property of President yeah. Biden's that has been searched. I think one question that, that I had immediately yesterday upon learning about this is why were they searching it now? 
So originally, the president's personal team, after they found those documents at his former office here in D.C., they went and they searched the Wilmington home, they searched the Rehoboth home. But it was very much expected, once this became a full-blown special counsel investigation, that the FBI would want to conduct its own searches. So about 10 days ago, we saw them do their own search of the Wilmington home, and then it was very much expected, which is why we had cameras there, right? We've been waiting for this, that this home would also be searched. But what really strikes me, Caitlin, is there's clearly a desire to move quickly here, because yesterday was the special counsel's first day. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of this because uh, it was reporters who spotted the sedans and the SUVs going to this house. That's when people started asking, you know, the White House and the Justice Department about this. Uh, the special counsel, though, has started, Robert Hur. He is now going to be overseeing this. You know, once you get started, what does that really look like? Where does he get started? And what's the timeline expectation? So what we've had so far has been a review, gathering some facts, assessing whether they need to do a full-blown criminal investigation. Now that Hur is on the job, he will have the opportunity to use a grand jury. We expect he'll do that. He'll likely conduct interviews. Most of the interviews so far have been informal, but he'll be able to interview, re-interview people. And then there's this big question about additional searches. Yesterday, the White House was asked if any other locations had been searched. They wouldn't answer, but that's been par for the course. They've chosen to, instead of getting out in front of things, uh, letting the process play out, but also letting the news leak out. Yeah. Well, the question still, I mean, they said no classified documents yesterday, but they did take some personal handwritten notes relating to his time as vice president. Paul Reed, I know you'll stay on this, so thank you so much for, for doing so, for that reporting. Of course. Don Poppy. All right, Caitlin, thank you very much. We'll get back this morning. Hunter Biden is fighting back with a new legal strategy. He's calling for a criminal investigation into a computer repair shop owner and former President Trump's allies over the spreading of personal data purported to be from his laptop. Straight to Evan Perez now. Evan, good morning to you, sir. So this, it seems like this Hunter Biden thing, it just keeps legs, more legs, more legs, more <laughs> legs. Uh, this is quite the tone shift for the Hunter Biden team, right? It, it really is. What he's trying to do, uh, Don and Poppy, is he's trying to turn the tables on the people who really have, uh, have been attacking him over the last couple of years. And in these letters to the Delaware State Attorney General, to the Justice Department, to the IRS, uh, what Hunter Biden's lawyers are asking for is for criminal investigations of the, the, the computer <laughs> repair uh, salesman, the, the, shop, the shop owner, as well as Rudy Giuliani and a number of other right-wing figures. In the, name, in the case of John Paul McIsaac, uh, he's the one who allegedly accessed these doc the, uh, his personal data on a laptop that he says Hunter Biden dropped off back in 2019. I'll read you just a part of what uh, Abby Lowell, uh, Hunter Biden's attorney, uh, says in his letters. Uh, he says uh, that... Uh, 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 Mr. McIsaac's inten intentional, reckless, and unlawful conduct allowed for hundreds of gigabytes of Mr. Biden's personal data without any discretion to be circulated around the internet. He says that this is a dirty trick that was really used, uh, trying to use the, uh, his personal data to weaponize it against his father. Um, I find this turn to be really fascinating, Evan. He hires Abby Lowell, a really, you know, well-known uh, representative, right. which I thought it was interesting that, you know, the other side of the legal team is saying, well, he just got this fancy lawyer, et cetera, and sort of brushing off this strategy change. But isn't it significant that, that his legal team now is saying for the first time, yes, this is Hunter Biden's personal data that's being trafficked? 
Yeah, that's a really, uh, certainly the, the biggest thing we've noticed is that for a couple of years now, Hunter and his lawyers have uh, basically tried to not comment at all on these, on these stories. And what they're trying to do now is to say, well, these people have actually broken the law. As you know, Poppy and Don, uh, he's, un he's under investigation for a uh, criminal investigation by the Justice Department. So this allows him to fight on another, in another stage. We'll watch it all. Evan, thank you for the reporting. Ahead, there's outrage in Ohio over a Nazi homeschooling network reportedly using Hitler quotes as an educational resource. And Florida's governor blasting a new AP African-American studies course. What's in it, what's not, and why did the college board change it? This morning, the College Board unveiling a revised framework for its new advanced placement course on African-American studies. It covers 79 topics ranging from early African kingdoms to black Americans' achievements in science, music, and art. But critics are saying that the changes were made to appease Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who rejected the original curriculum last month. Layla Santiago, live for us in Miami. Good morning, Layla. How does this newly revised version differ, differ from the original curriculum? Good morning, Don. You know, the, the College Board, those responsible for creating this program, will tell you that this revised version takes into account the feedback from students and teachers and experts that were engaged in the pilot program, not politicians. But it is that initial framework from the pilot program that Florida took issue with when it rejected the program last month. We're still waiting to hear from Florida if it will accept this new version to find out if AP African-American studies will be taught in classrooms here in Florida. Look at this traffic. For 42 years, not knowing this man was killed right here, and my mishistory from that moment was never the same. The man was Arthur McDuffie, a black father beaten to death by white police officers in Miami in 1979. When the officers were acquitted, riots followed. So it happened right here. Right here. It's places like this that are central to historian Marvin Dunn's Teach the Truth Tours, an effort to shed light on the history he says many students don't learn about in the classroom. There is now an effort in Florida to cherry pick history. And when you start cherry picking history, you need to make sure you don't have somebody doing that who hates cherries. The latest controversy, an advanced placement African-American study course. The College Board, the nonprofit that oversees the AP program, has now revised its official coursework. Florida's Department of Education had rejected the initial proposal to the pilot course, saying it was, quote, inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, up to this point has been very critical of the pilot program. We have history, a lot of different shapes and sizes people that have participated uh, to make the country great, uh, people that have stood up when it wasn't easy, and they all deserve uh, uh, to be taught. But abolishing prisons, being taught to high school kids as if that's somehow a fact, no, that, that's, that's not appropriate. 
Last year, Florida passed legislation known as the Stop Woke Act championed by DeSantis. In part, it barred instruction that suggests anyone is privileged or oppressed based on their race or skin color. The state's objections to the AP course stemmed from proposed coursework written a year ago for the pilot program. The Department of Education provided CNN with a copy of the curriculum they reviewed and a list of the state's objections, all related to Unit 4, titled Movements and Debates. Concerns included black queer studies, movements for black lives, black feminist literary thought, among others, citing concerns about the works of specific authors and scholars. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. But in the newly released official framework, Unit 4 does not include any of the authors or scholars that the state listed as a concern. Queer theory and Black Lives Matter still mentioned in the course, but only as ideas for potential student project topics. We asked the co-chair of the development committee for the course if any changes were made because of the objections of the state of Florida. No. That, if, 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 if that were the case, if, if the state of Florida or any state itself could, could single-handedly alter the curriculum of African-American studies, the AP African-American studies course, or any AP course for that matter, it would actually undermine the integrity of the process that we have in place. I learned a lot. C.J. Footman, T.J. Brown, and their moms who live in Miami say they've been waiting for a course like this. They all attended a Teach the Truth tour and say they wouldn't know as much about their own history if it weren't for the courses taught by Dunn. We learn about the same people every year. George Washington Carver, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks. I feel like it's, it's just the same stuff being taught to us and it's kind of like, okay, they can know this, but that's it. I feel like if we don't learn this, history might just repeat itself and it's going to keep going on and on. So we have to learn it in order to stop it. Some parents welcomed the scrutiny. Omisha Smith told us she wouldn't mind if her own daughter took the course, but some things, she said, are best taught at home. Some things, like the queer studies, that may or may not offend some of the children, uh, make them feel a little bit uncomfortable. As for Professor Dunn, he's now part of a lawsuit against the state's stop woke law. Being uncomfortable, he says, is a part of learning and understanding the history that is often overlooked. It looked like what had happened here. A man had been massacred at, the, at, the, at this spot. But listen, every community in this country has spots like this. Places where blacks have been abused, killed, and they've been forgotten about. This is not unique to Miami. And the governor's office tells us the Department of Education is currently reviewing this new version to see if it complies with the law. Don? All right. Layla Santiago in Miami, thank you very much. It was fascinating. So let's talk about this and a lot more with CNN anchor and correspondent Adi Cornish. Adi, good morning to you. Uh, good so let, let's start there on Layla's reporting because the college board says this was all about pedagogical reasons, right? This is because of input from professors, et cetera. They even said at the college board we cannot look to statements of political leaders. What do you take from this? 
I mean, I've been listening to the college board president speak, and he has said specifically that they have kind of time-stamped records showing that they were already making sort of adjustments to this syllabus, so to speak. And one of the differences is that they want it to focus on primary documents, right? The original documents of whatever they're talking about, rather than people's interpretations, essays, books, etc. I think the broader context is that more than a dozen states had passed critical race theory, um, sort of uh, anti-critical race theory laws over the last year or two. And so Florida could have been, maybe, at the front of sort of a broader movement um, where people would be kind of more outspoken and more aggressive um, against educational institutions that talk about diversity or equity or inclusion Mm -hmm. in history or any other context, frankly. You know, Audie, we had a similar conversation here on the set uh, a a couple weeks ago uh, regarding the books, right, uh, in Florida, a similar thing here. I I just wonder, it's Black History Month, and, you know, Layla just mentioned in her story, and the the gentleman there talking about um, prison system, right, they wanted to outlaw or not teach about prison system, which is very important when you look at the 13th Amendment and how that contributed to the prison industrial complex in America. These are things that I didn't learn, and I went to an all-black Catholic school. I wish it had been part of my curriculum. I didn't learn about it until I was much older, until watching Ava DuVernay's uh, documentary or film, The uh, 13. I mean, I I didn't know about Baird Rustin's impact on the civil rights movement, that he was an architect uh, of the March on Washington and much of what Dr. King did, and he is a member of the LGBTQ community. Why is that so hard? Why shouldn't people learn about that in Florida and beyond? It's just mind-boggling to me. I think the broader sort of framing of this question is what is the role of politics in our public education system? Who makes the decisions about what is history and what is not history? And um, what does this mean for the Republican Party going forward if Ron DeSantis is moving towards a national movement? He's staking out ground that Trump didn't, right, in this area of education specifically. And there's a lot of history for the party there with George Bush, et cetera, where there was uh, this idea that you could reach out to marginalized groups through education um, and through maybe the strains of conservative there. So I think people should not look at it as what's going on in Florida. That seems weird. They hate history. Mm-hmm. And more in the context of where is the movement going that is against diversity? Where is the movement that is going against inclusion that finds these things offensive, that finds them racist, that is sort of counter arguing to it? How far will that national movement go? And it's really become this political tool because, I mean, you saw the Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, who we had on the show recently, he was, you know, saying don't change this course, don't modify it because that's giving in to what he called the political grandstanding of people like yeah. Governor Ron and this DeSantis. morning, Ron DeSantis was trending, right, on social media. I don't think it's an accident that it's Black History Month. Um, this is very much kind of waving a flag in the air and saying, kind of, look at me. I'm fighting the wars you want me to fight to a specific kind of voting demographic. I think at a certain point, especially after we've just had this kind of beating death uh, in Memphis, you are kind of also kind of raising the alert for maybe black voters who may in Florida start to see themselves under attack in this way and in others. Oh, so you think it could potentially backfire? Uh, I mean, certainly he's got in Florida, there was this effort to go after um, fake voters and actually arrest people who had somehow committed election fraud. Those cases were all dropped. It starts to look like you're targeting a community for exercising their rights. um, And I think young people will notice that as well. 
Fascinating times to see what this, how this is used going forward. Audie, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having it, me. It really is. I, when I got back from Memphis this weekend, I yeah. went to dinner with friends. The 16-year-old mm-hmm. son peppered me with so many questions about Tyree Memphis Nichols. and Tyree Nichols. And it's like, these kids, are they want to learn things, you know, and I, I just don't understand it. Your daughter. Yeah, I'm in the middle of this, Audie, right now. We have kids about the same age, and I'm in the middle of, right now, uh, my daughter's in first grade, is learning about racism and discrimination, and I'm fascinated by the way that her teachers are teaching kids about injustice. And she came home yesterday and asked me about Tyree Nichols, right? Um, That came up. So I am going through this. Yeah. Right now, and Audie, appreciate your perspective as always so much. Thanks, Audie. Thanks, Caitlin. We'll see you in just a little bit. we got to get to this live event. That happens every year. Any moment now, Puxatani Phil. <laughs> it's Groundhog make, Day. Oh my gosh. We'll make his prediction. Where's Bill Murray? And Needle. Yeah, where is where Bill is Murray? Bill Murray. By the way, I saw Bill Nye, the science guy, last night. It's a whole nother story. Gosh, but okay. Plus well. this. Who run the world? Girls, Officially going on tour. Now concerns are growing about can Ticketmaster handle this one? Next. Beyonce's highly anticipated world tour announcement being met with just as much concern from her fans, maybe as there is excitement. Why? Because all eyes are on Ticketmaster following its botched ticket rollout for Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, which you will recall was so bad. Not the tour, but the rollout of the tickets that the issue was even brought before Congress. Let's discuss with CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Good morning. We need more music on the show. That just lifted my spirits. And I'm so glad. But they could just keep playing it while we talk. Disco's had a huge comeback. I'm I'm loving it. But anyways. I'm just going to get back on track here. No. (laughs) Um, So Ticketmaster, I mean, they were like hauled Live Nation before Congress, before the Senate. Um, they've got to get this one right. They have to. And they're making a few changes so that they can get it right. But I was looking this morning through the registration instructions for this concert, and it's chaos. So first of all, you have to register just to be verified that you're a real person and not a bot. Remember, Ticketmaster said part of the chaos with Taylor Swift was that it was bots. And then the other thing that you have to do is you have to wait to get an access code. So even if you're verified as being a real person, it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be able to register for that first sale. Getting an access code will be done by a lottery system, so it should be equitable. And what they're trying to do is make sure that there's not too many people all at once trying to register. But once you get an access code, that becomes a first-come, first-served basis. And, Poppy, we know those computer crunches become really crazy at the first come first serve basis that's what shut down Ticketmaster's website in the first place in november with taylor swift you don't want to tick off what? the beehive and swifties i mean no i was so proud of taylor swift's statement you know like really taking on the machine you don't want to piss off these communities because they're so <laughs> online it's true but the senate judiciary they held, they held a hearing is that gonna i mean Change anything? You think that'll have any impact on this? Yes, yes, because Ticketmaster, as we talked about last time I was here, they merged with Live Nation in 2010, and the government approved that merger, and then they reapproved what's a little part of the agreement in 2020, but that comes up again in five years. And so if regulators think they don't handle these concerts properly, they could very well say, hey, the approval that we gave you to remain merged with your parent, that's over now. 
So there is real meat and real teeth That's here. That's right, because of that consent decree. Exactly. That's fascinating. Thank you, Sarah. Thank Very you. Much. more Beyonce on this show. <laughs> Next. Oh, Next. you know, this, this is a crazy story. Is it? A wild story. Wow. An adult coach posing as a <laughs> student to play in a basketball game. What? Yep, told ya. What? <laughs> Come on. <clears throat> okay, so Poppy's really excited about this story. She's like, wait, I am. Who does this? This is sports. We're talking sports. Most basketball coaches do their work from the sidelines, but not the assistant coach at one Virginia high school. She got in the game <laughs> and has now been fired. The 22-year-old was caught on camera wearing a team jersey and playing on the court. You can see her blocking, dribbling, shooting, despite being old enough to drink. Wow. <laughs> As a result, the JV team had to forfeit the game. Most of the other players you see there are between 13 and 15. Aw. So here's what the head of the Virginia High School League said about the matter. We failed kids because we got a group of, of, of young ladies who now will not be able to uh, finish their season um, because of the b- behavior of uh, some adults. I think he said it all. He did. All right, next, President Biden heads to Capitol Hill this morning as the debate rages over the debt ceiling and police reform. Stay right here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Tell it's almost Groundhog Day because Tom Brady announced he's retiring again. <laughs> yeah, everyone got emotional watching the heartfelt message. Even Bill Belichick's shirt holes grew three sizes today. <laughs> yep, Brady is done, and in a related story, uh, tickets to next year's Buccaneers games are now free. <laughs> that was funny. Good one. That's a good one about the Groundhog's Day. I didn't think of that one. I like the Belichick. Very clever there, Jimmy Fallon. I like the holes. Good morning, everyone. We're going to speak with Robert Kraft a little bit later on in the show. You can see Poppy and I are in New York. Caitlin is in Capitol Hill because there's a lot going on there today. We need to talk about the U.S. military, though, has sealed a huge deal to ramp up troops and firepower on China's doorstep now. Beijing is responding. Yeah, and Don, as you mentioned, a busy day here on Capitol Hill. The president is actually going to be arriving soon. He is facing a series of investigations, of course, into uh, the documents or uh, the investigation to his classified documents and also a standoff potentially that could tank the economy. We're going to actually speak to Republican Senator Rick Scott of the Budget Committee and Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman. Both will join us here live on set. And it appears this morning George Santos's legal troubles could be getting a lot more serious. Federal agents are now investigating claims that he stole donations from a military veteran's dying care for a military veteran's dying dog. But Poppy and Caitlin, first, just days after an American general warned of a potential war with China, the U.S. is expanding its military presence in the region as fears grow of a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan. In a deal with the Philippines, American forces will get access to four more bases in the country and a strategic advantage on the southeastern edge of the disputed South China Sea, close to self-rule Taiwan. The announcement coming as the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with the Philippines president 
Austin reiterating the U.S. commitment to the defense of its Southeast Asian ally. China was quick to respond to the move, accusing the U.S. of endangering regional peace and stability with its selfish agenda. We have a live report from China straight ahead on CNN this morning. Yeah, busy day here in Washington as well as we wait on that report. President Biden will be on Capitol Hill soon to attend the National Prayer Breakfast, but it comes at a turbulent time for the White House and for lawmakers. The president is facing the investigation by the special counsel that probe over the classified documents. You saw the FBI searching his home in Rehoboth yesterday. He's also engaged in a political standoff with House Republicans when it comes to potentially threatening to crash the economy if the United States doesn't meet its financial obligations. CNN's White House correspondent, correspondent Arlette Sines, is with us now. Arlette, you know, all of this is happening this morning. We saw that sit down with Speaker McCarthy and President Biden yesterday. McCarthy seemed pretty optimistic coming out of it, but what are White House officials saying behind the scenes of what their expectations are? Yeah, he did, uh, Caitlin. And really, this prayer breakfast up on the Hill that President Biden will be speaking at uh, will offer him a bit of a bipartisan moment, a bit of a respite from those looming battles he has with Republicans. And chief among them is the, that standoff over the debt ceiling. President Biden Speaker McCarthy met for roughly 90 minutes here at the White House, and they really entered that meeting and left that meeting still with completely differing viewpoints. McCarthy insisting that they will not uh, pass a clean debt ceiling increase without cuts to spending. And President Biden still sticking by his stance that there is no negotiations over that issue. He did say in a statement afterwards that he would be open to separate discussions when it comes to reducing the deficit. But clearly, these two men are going to face a long standoff battle over the next few months. Yeah, and Arlette, it also comes as we saw Hunter Biden, the president's son last night, and his team of attorneys calling for a criminal probe into Trump allies over the laptop scandal. Has the White House commented at all on that? Well, Caitlin, you know, the White House has been very careful to have try to have these separate uh, lines when it comes to the, the legal strategy of uh, Hunter Biden. You know, the White House has been preparing for investigations up on the Capitol Hill. But when it comes to the legal strategy in defending him, that that is actually something that they try to leave to the attorneys. But this is something that is a very personal matter for the president. He has often defended his son and has said that many of the investigations into him he believes to be politically motivated. So we We'll see how this all plays out as Hunter Biden's team is now taking a more aggressive approach. Yeah, definitely more aggressive and also acknowledging for the first time that that information that's been out there is Hunter Biden's. Arlette Sines, thank you for that report. Poppy, back to you. Thank you, Caitlin. This morning, we're learning that federal investigators interviewed a Navy veteran who says he was scammed by embattled Congressman George Santos. Rich Ostoff claims that Santos stole money. It was donated to help save his dying dog in 2016. The veteran says Santos set up a GoFundMe, then made off with $3,000 intended for the dog's life-saving surgery. Here is what Ostoff recently told you, Don, when he was on this show just a few weeks ago. Santos really took a piece of my heart when, when he did this. I, 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 my, my opinion of humanity was very, very extremely diminished, crashed into the floor. I don't want you to ever hurt anybody like you hurt me again, George. And, and nobody else should ever have to go through that. I almost killed myself when that dog died. Oh, let's bring in our Karis Canal for all. I mean, this probe is so much bigger now because this is federal investigators and it's about money. 
Right. I mean, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, sources tell CNN, is investigating Santos. And there's everything that we're learning from the questions around the campaign finance and those filings. And now this. So Rich Ostoff, the Navy veteran, told CNN that he spoke with two FBI agents yesterday who told him that they were there on behalf of the U.S. Attorney's Office. He said he cooperated with them and he handed over the text messages that he had exchanged with Santos, who was using the name Anthony DeVolder at the time. And Santos had set up this GoFundMe, said he was going to raise money to help Ostoff you know, have enough funds to pay for this life-saving surgery for his pit bull. There you can see her. Her name is Sapphire. Uh, so what happened was that he said, Ostoff told CNN that when it came time to get the surgery, that Santos had become uncooperative. And he, he said that, you know, in these text messages, he was telling Santos he felt jerked around. Um, he never did get the money and Sapphire eventually did pass away. Uh, now, Santos was, you know, chased by reporters in the halls of Congress yesterday. He was dodging questions on this. You know, at the time, he said that um, he had no clue what Ostoff was talking about when Ostoff came forward with this information, and that um, he said that he you know, was defending his work with this pet charity. Did you see that? How cute Sapphire. I mean, just adorable. So cute. Yeah. Um, so then what are the consequences? What happens if they do find out that he indeed did this? Well, I mean, you know, if they look at the, the books here, I mean, one of the common charges that you see when someone raises money and solicits money and then doesn't give it, doesn't use it in the way that they intended, I mean, that is often a classic wire fraud charge. And that's a serious charge. Yeah. Um, that can carry a lot of prison time if it if it were to go to that. I mean, this is this is all this is the federal case we're talking about. But the New York Attorney General's office is also looking at this. They have a charities bureau that does these kind of consumer type cases. So I think we're going to see this play out over the next couple of weeks. Oh, all right. And Thank you. yeah, this and more. And Thank more. you, Kara. <laughs> Appreciate it. So there's pivotal new evidence in the Alec. Alex Murdoch trial, double murder trial, prosecutors played video that was taken from one of the victim's cell phones that they say places Alex Murdoch at the murder scene around the time that his wife and son were killed. Murdoch had told investigators previously on at least two occasions that he was not there. Here he is talking to investigators on the night of the killings. Maggie's a dog lover. Okay. She fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's. Left the house and went to my mom's. That was his quote. Now listen carefully to this video evidence they played in court. Prosecutors say you can hear three different voices. Hey, you got a bird in the sound. Blah, blah. Hey, brother. It's a kitty. It's a chicken. So after that video was played, two uh, family friends testified that one of the voices heard on that video was Alec Murdoch. Listen to that. Whose voices did you recognize on that video? Uh, Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alex Murdoch. And how sure are you? 100%. You recognize Paul's voice? Yes, sir. You recognize Maggie's voice? Yes, sir. You recognize Alex's voice? Yes, sir. 100%? Yes, sir. Joining us to talk about what they see in this, CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson and also criminal defense attorney Stacey Richmond. Guys, thank you very much for being here. Stacey, let me just begin with you because um, you think this is detrimental to the defense. Why? 
Well, certainly it's detrimental to the defense because it places him at a scene where he denies being shortly before the murders. But it's not as if the defense did not know about this. If you listen to the opening, it's, it's a fact beyond change. It has to be dealt with. It's not the best fact, but there are other facts to counter it. What are they? You're, how would you defend this? Well, his defense counsel has thought through this. So if you go back to the opening, you find out that there is other cell phone evidence that takes him off property. The Maggie's phone is thrown away about a quarter of a mile in a different direction. So they're going to be pairing and comparing where was he? And the fact that he didn't bring this up before, defense has already previewed, he was in shock. It was too much for him. Clearly, he's there before the killings, but it's four and a half minutes. Time that out. How big is this property? Where could he get to? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why defense uh, wants to take the jury there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good morning. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, spoken like a, a fantastic defense attorney that Stacey is, known a long time. This is damning evidence, and, and it's crucial for the following reason. Listen, when you're a defense attorney and there's no eyewitnesses, Poppy, you're, you have a clear road. There's no DNA on any weapons or anything, clear road. There's no indication, uh, right, that you're at the scene or anything else based on surveillance. You're good to go. The problem with this is the following. Number one, he gives the indication, Mr. Murdoch, that he's napping, right? Well, it would seem to contradict that you were napping and not there in the event that your voice is there. Your voice is DNA, not actual DNA, but it's right? Figurative. So it connects you and it puts you at the specific uh, scene. What else is problematic? It's problematic that just after, we have to look at the time frame involved, just after that, the son's communicating with a friend, guess what? His phone's not working anymore. That's troubling as well. And so to the extent that you give an alibi that you weren't there, have no clue, you know, nothing to see here, and then there's your voice on a particular tape right around the time that it occurs, and it goes out, and then there's more. You're calling your wife to fabricate an alibi after the fact. All of those things are problems. So certainly it's not, you know, without question, it'll be defended. Stacey just did a great job of that. But I think it raises critical issues, and it gives the jurors reason to say, you know what? You're guilty. So, okay, you said DNA, right? Yes, sir. And, but you, and you also said contradiction. I'm wondering, is it, you know, if you have that strong of evidence or DNA, is it a contradiction or is it just a flat-out lie? And if you were, because you're both defense attorneys, what would your strategy be and would you let him take the stand? Mm. I think that he's problematic taking the stand. I think that he's an erratic character. It is always the choice of the defendant, but... So what's your defense then? The defense is going with the facts, embracing the facts, just as the defense opened with. Okay, and as, as my father always says, you know, when you have one, a murder is great because you have one less witness here. You have two less witnesses. But times have changed. Mm -hmm. Video evidence is a problem for him. Audio evidence is a problem for him. So you embrace the facts. The, the one thing is one phone is thrown over here. He's in the car. It's the distance. Can he make it those four and a half minutes or... Is it all made up? I'm also attacking yeah. the motivation. I don't get this motivation as to, you know, what his financial issues, he was going to be outed. You have a spousal privilege involving your wife. Your wife's going to testify against you. Your son, you love your son more, and your son loves you more than anything in the world. Your son's going to turn state's evidence against you. There's two guns involved here. And so, you know, there certainly, and there was an admission that there could be two shooters. So there's somewhere to go. But I did not like, I'll tell you, and I think it's damning as it relates to what we heard yesterday, which his voice is there. And if you want, as a juror, to connect you, mm -hmm. right, to connect the dots, yeah. that connects him. Last, last point. 
It's last, about last, last, last point. We talk about this concept of reasonable doubt, right? Stacey will tell you, the jury's instructed. It's not a mathematical certainty, right? It's not about you have to establish, you know, beyond all doubt, it's reasonable doubt. And with this introduction of this tape, is it reasonable not to believe that he did it? It's a problem. And it's you got to get unanimity yeah. in that jury. So thank you, Stacey. Right. Thank you, Joey. Kaylin. Thanks so much, John and Poppy. Uh, here on Capitol Hill this morning, we are hearing from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell, who is not mincing words about the debt ceiling. There's only one way forward here, and that is for Congress to raise the debt ceiling so that the United States government can pay all of its obligations when due. And any deviations from that path would be highly risky. Joining me now to talk about all of this and those warnings is Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who is a member of the budget committee and last week was one of two dozen Senate Republicans who said in a letter to President Biden they will not back a debt ceiling increase without major spending cuts. Uh, thank you so much for joining us yep. this morning. What are those major spending cuts that you want to see? Well, what, what we said was either we've got to, you know, we, we have, this is all, should be all hands on debt. Deck. It's not a partisan issue. This is impacts every American family. Look at interest rates right now uh, on mortgages, credit cards, and also just look at inflation. When you go to the grocery store, look at what costs you to get eggs or meat and things like that. Raising, constantly increasing our debt is putting our, our fiscal house at risk. So what we've got to do is either we've got to reduce our cost, okay, grow our revenues responsibly, not raising taxes, or we've got to do is we've got to have some sort of structural reform so we know we'll get there down the road. So that's what we pro we've proposed. There's a, I have a variety of things. I think people ought to get back to work. If you, if you don't have young children, you're able-bodied or dependent adults, get back to work. We ought to make sure we never default on our debt. We can prioritize our payments to make sure we never default as we come to an agreement on what we're going to do. So I'm, I'm, I want to responsibly raise the debt ceiling. But what areas could those cuts come from? That's been the big question that I feel like people don't feel like Republicans have been clear on is where exactly the cuts sure. you could afford to cut. So here's what we here's what we have to do. We have to preserve the benefits of Social Security, Medicare. We've got to preserve those benefits. But what I did as governor, I walked in with the budget deficit. You go every line. You don't you don't just say I you know there's a just blanket cost. What you do is you take every line. You say where where are things we don't need? Nice to have we but we don't need. So we've got to have real budgets and we've got to go through every line and just saying oh there's just one. We clearly know there's there's ways there's fraud and abuse. There's there's you know, where we can do things more efficiently. There's ways to deliver the services of federal, our federal, state, local governments more efficiently. That's what we've got to do. But should any mandatory spending for the social safety net be on the table, you think? Well, you don't, no, and you don't have to. I mean, look, we people are paid in the Social Security program. We've got to make sure we preserve that. Medicare, preserve it. Now, is there ways that we can address the delivery system in Medicare? Absolutely. We can address, we can make it more efficiently. I was in the hospital business. I know there's ways we can do that more efficiently, but benefits, no way. One thing you've been saying recently is talking about Medicare, and you've been making this claim that Democrats have cut Medicare by $300 million or so. But that is, that's not the case. That's not what happened with the Inflation Reduction Act. So what, what is your point with saying that? Well, they cut $280 billion out of, out of, out of Medicare. They, they did it. But I saw that you said this. They didn't cut it. it basically, what it essentially it was, it was part of the being able to negotiate the prescription drug prices. So changing what they are spending on it is not equal to cuts, right? Is it, is it, okay, so if, if that's true, then, then every time you figure out how to save money in Medicare, that's not a cut. But that's not what the Democrats say. 
So $280 billion reduction in spending in Medicare. Because it's allowing the a, government to spend less on these medications. But let's remember what it's going to do. It's going, it's going to make sure that there are new life-saving drugs that are not created. Why would we do that? I mean, what, there's, you, can, you can figure out there's efficiency you can create, but you don't just say, I'm just going to cut $280 billion and we're going to make sure that we don't get some life-saving drugs. It's going to happen. It's already starting to happen. That's not good. It could be for you know, anybody's grandparent or our parent. But you can see that it's misleading to say that they cut $300 million when it's a change in how they're negotiating the drug prices, right? If you cut $280 billion out of what you spend, which is what they did, that's called a cut, and what it's going to do, it's going to take, it's going to make sure those companies don't have the money to invest in new life-saving drugs. That's a cut. And that's, that is a potential, most likely a reduction in the benefit that a, a Medicare recipient is going to get, a life-saving drug that could save their life. That's a, I mean, that's a cut. Uh, just CNN fact check this. They said that, that framing it as a cut is nonsense, they believe. But uh, I want to move on because one big question has been when Senate Majority Le or Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to get involved in these talks on the debt ceiling. Do you think it's time now for him to get involved? I think every everybody up here ought to be involved. Every senator ought to be involved. Every House member ought to be involved. I mean, this is impacting every district, every state. We ought to have get put our ideas out there and let's figure out, let's get the best ideas out there. This this is not a partisan issue. We have $31.5 trillion of the debt. If we don't address it now at 35, at 40, 45, 50, and how are we going to get interest rates down if we don't address the debt ceiling? How are we going to get inflation down? We've got to figure this out. We've got to get our fiscal house in order. When I was governor, I balanced the budget every year and paid off a third of the state debt. And guess what? My revenues grew, even though I cut taxes and fees 100 times. We can do the same thing here. We've got to get more jobs. We've got to get more. We've got to grow our economy. If we don't, we'll never have enough money to take care of the programs we care about. If we care about Medicare and Social Security, we have got to figure out how to responsibly live within our means. Speaking of McConnell, he pulled you yesterday from the powerful <clears throat> Commerce Committee that you've sat on that came after you challenged him for the Republican leadership in the Senate. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'm going to keep doing my job. Um, so I put out a plan. Um, you know, he completely opposed me putting out a plan. I believe that everybody, everybody up here, this is this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. We all ought to be putting out our ideas and fight over ideas up here. He, he didn't like that. I opposed him because I believe we have to have ideas, fight over ideas. And so uh, he took Mike Lee and I off the committee. Uh, I'm going to still do my job. Ted Cruz is the ranking member. I've got a relationship with him. But I don't know why. I don't, I don't, I don't think it made any sense. I've, I'm responsible for the third biggest state in the country. I probably run the biggest company uh, in my prior career of anybody that's in the Senate right now or before. So, I mean, I bring a lot to the table, but that's a decision he, he made. Yeah, and you're one of the wealthiest lawmakers here as well. But some people would say, well, you know, what did you expect? Because you did go up against him in that bruising battle for the leadership position. Our job is to represent the people of the country. This is not about winners and losers. It's not about partisan stuff. This is about, about who are the best people to solve the problems of this country. We have significant problems with our economy. We're not growing full-time jobs, all right? If look, at, look at our debt. We have a lot of problems. So I'm going to keep fighting for him. I don't know why he did it, but, you know, that's life. When it comes to the 2024 race, you've said you're not going to endorse anyone until the primary is over. If Trump is the nominee, will you endorse Trump? And do you I'm think gonna, he should I'm run? Gonna, I'm going to work whoever, with whoever the Republican nominee is. And do you think other Republicans should challenge him for the nomination? Nikki Haley may be running, Ron DeSantis in your home state? Oh, it's not my decision. There's a lot. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get into it. I think I think elections are about fight. They should be 
fight over ideas. And so that's what everybody's going to get in. We ought to be fighting over who brings the best ideas to solve the problems of this country in 23 and 24. Senator Rick Scott, thank you so much. You nice have also you. announced you are running for re-election in 2024. Right. Of course, we'll watch that as well. Thank you so much. Thanks. Don Poppy, back to you. Another fascinating interview. Caitlin, thank you thank very, you. very much. A California community outraged and a family is now claiming excessive force after a dub double amputee who was armed with a knife is shot and killed by police. We'll take you live to Los Angeles. Wow. Plus, hear the messages of hope and, the, and resilience at Tyree Nichols Memorial Service. All I want is my baby brother back. Every time you kill one of us on video, we're going to say the legacy of Tyree Nichols is that we have equal justice swiftly. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment from God. And I guess now his assignment is done and he's been taken home. It's a mother of Tyree Nichols as Black History Month begins. One state is pulling books off shelves to comply with a law that bans critical race theory. Florida also blocking an AP African-American studies course. And now the governor is also pushing a ban on diversity programs in public universities there, saying that they discriminate. Also, as Black History Month begins, the nation is mourning another black man's death at the hands of police as the life of Tyree Nichols was celebrated in Tennessee. Reverend Al Sharpton invoked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated not far from where Tyree Nichols was beaten by those five officers. Dr. King got in the car by himself and rode over to Mason Temple and he started speaking that night and something came over him. He said that I don't fear any man. He said, We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I believe when he looked over, he could see a Barack Obama become president. I believe when he went to the mountaintop, he could look over and see a Kamala Harris sitting as vice president. I believe when he looked over from the mountaintop, he saw black police chiefs. He didn't expect you to disgrace him. He expected you to bring us on to the promised land. That's why I'm still marching. I'm a mountain climber. I expect stumbles to come my way. I'm a mountain climber. You can disgrace me. You can discredit me. But I'm going to keep on climbing. I'm going to climb until Tyrese Nichols get justice. I'm going to climb until Eric Gardner gets justice. I'm going to climb until we change the laws. We're mountain climbers. We're not bait traders. 
we're mountain climbers. And if God be for us, it's more than the whole world against us. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me that I'm his own. Man, that was such a moving set. It was very well done. I mean, the Reverend Al Sharpton, really, I gave a brilliant eulogy, preached a, a eulogy. It was, it was years, fantastic. What, more than 50 years 55, after Dr. King said that. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Wow. And, and by the way, in the same church, the same sanctuary that he gave That's that right. mountaintop speech the night before he was. Still climbing. Still climbing. Okay. Let's talk about California, where a community is outraged this morning after a double amputee accused of stabbing someone was shot and killed by police, not in his wheelchair, but on the stumps of his legs. Our Stephanie Elam is tracking this story. Good morning, Stephanie. What happened? Good morning, Poppy. This is going to probably be difficult for some people to watch, but this is raising questions about how much force is needed to stop someone, even if they are a stabbing suspect, when they're missing both of their legs. This is a man, father, a son, a brother, who was gunned down by the police. A double amputee out of his wheelchair. Huntington Park police officers pursuing the man as he moves away. Bystander videos on social media purportedly capturing the moments before police shot that man to death, sparking renewed concerns about the excessive use of force by law enforcement. If you guys are here to protect and serve us, protect us, serve protect us, serve you know, don't kill us. His family confirming to CNN the man in the videos is 36-year-old Anthony Lowe. There could be absolutely no justification for the use of lethal force. No justification for shooting Anthony. In one video, two officers are seen pointing weapons at Lowe, who moves away from them with something shiny in his hand. The officers walk after him, but then a police cruiser arrives, blocking that vantage point. From a different video on social media, another officer joins the other two following after Lowe. As another cruiser arrives, the three officers reach for their weapons. From this angle, the moment is seen when the officers open fire. In a statement, Huntington Park police said they were responding to a stabbing call last Thursday afternoon where the victim said a man dismounted the wheelchair, ran to the victim without provocation, and stabbed him in the side of the chest with a 12-inch butcher knife before fleeing the scene on the wheelchair. The department said two tasers were ineffective in subduing the man as the suspect ignored their verbal commands and threatened to advance or throw the knife at the officers. Would it change the way you would approach somebody if they were a double amputee? There are times certainly when deadly force is necessary, given the fact that this guy was a double amputee and could only move so swiftly. My mindset would have been to try to corral him, but I did not see uh, imminent threat of deadly injury to the officers or anyone else. Officials said Lowe was pronounced dead at the scene and the police officers involved are on paid administrative leave, while the Huntington Park Police Department and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department's Homicide Bureau investigate. The county's district attorney's office told CNN it will investigate once LASD completes its investigation, saying Los Angeles County deserves to know how and why these incidents have occurred. Ebonique Simon, the mother of Lowe's 15-year-old son, telling CNN he had been dealing with a lot of depression after losing his legs in an incident that happened about a year ago. I just want justice and the truth for my son. Lowe's mother distraught and in disbelief. They murdered my son. 
in a wheelchair with no legs. And Cheryl Dorsey, that retired LAPD sergeant that you saw me speaking with, was saying that, you know, part of that video is not viewable. And so there will be a need for more investigation to know exactly what happened and that the, she could see things that were done wrong on both sides. Perhaps uh, uh, Mr. Lowe could not have run away from the officers. And then also they could have used every other way mm. to stop him other than deadly force. And I should also mention, Don and Poppy, that the family is expected to file a wrongful death lawsuit later today. Okay. This is disturbing to watch. Right. We don't know, Steph, right, everything else that may have been used, a taser, et cetera. We do know that a taser was used. We do know that. But uh, we do know that. that they, right, but they also said that they were yelling commands to him. But because part of that video is absconded, we still don't know. I reached out to the police chief yesterday, and I have not heard back to find out more okay. clarity about what happened here. Thank you for the reporting. Let's go back to Caitlin in Washington. Yeah, back here on Capitol Hill, we're going to be joined by New York Congressman Dan Goldman next on what he expects to come from the current economic stalemate over the debt ceiling. And ahead, we're also going to take you live to the fierce battle that is playing out on Ukraine's eastern front where Sam Kiley is. The Ukrainians say the situation here is reminiscent of some of the worst times in World War II, where they're not only fighting a strong adversary, but the elements as well. In just moments from now, President Biden is going to be here on Capitol Hill for the National Prayer Breakfast that comes after Speaker Kevin McCarthy's trip yesterday to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue when Biden hosted him at the White House. McCarthy left that meeting sounding cautiously optimistic about finding a path forward to raising the debt ceiling. You know what, President, I had it. I thought the meeting today was a good first start. That doesn't mean that it all comes to fruition, but walking out, I can see that it could come together. I, I, I was very hopeful from the meeting, was better than I thought. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman from New York, who was previously the lead counsel in Trump's first impeachment trial and is now on the House Oversight and Homeland Security Committees, as well as the subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, on Kevin McCarthy, sounding so optimistic coming out of that meeting and the White House kind of softening their language as well. Are you as optimistic as Kevin McCarthy is that they're actually going to find a path forward here? Well, it, it, we, we need to take a step back and remember what we're talking about here. You know, the Republicans want to hold the president and the Democrats hostage to make future spending cuts in order to pay our past debts. And th they should be separate. And I think that's what President Biden said. This is not about paying our, the, uh, raising the debt ceiling is not about future spending. It's about paying our past debts, over 25% of which was caused by Donald Trump and his administration. So the Republicans are happy to raise the debt ceiling when there's a Republican president, but they're gonna try to hold the Democrats hostage. And I think what the readout from the White House was very clear. Let's talk about spending separate from the debt ceiling, because if we do not raise the debt ceiling, we will cause a global economic crisis. But given Republicans are in the majority, is the White House position that there should be no cuts realistic? Not that the way you believe it should or should not be, but is it realistic that that, that is what's going to be the end of the road here. Well, let's remember, right? Kevin McCarthy can say what he wants, but he truly does not control the fringe uh, elements of his party. And we saw that in the speaker's race. And what they are very clear about is that they want to cut Social Security. 
They want to cut Medicare. They want to cut the, the entitlements that Americans depend on. And that is a clear non-starter for Democrats. You are on this new subcommittee that is on the weaponization of the federal government as Republicans are framing it. Jim Jordan is going to be running it. What is your role go, as a Democrat on that committee going to look like? Look, they can dress it up and call it whatever they want. But in reality, what this is, is the subcommittee to obstruct justice. It has incredibly broad powers, including to conduct oversight over ongoing criminal investigations. Well, what are the ongoing criminal investigations that they want to conduct oversight of? The January 6th investigation into not only Donald Trump, but House Republicans themselves. And so what our role as Democrats is to be the sober adult in the room, talks about facts, talks about truth, defends our democratic institutions, defends the rule of law, and that's what we will do. I spent 10 years in the Department of Justice working alongside the FBI. I worked on the House Intelligence Committee, and I understand how the system actually works. I have yet to see the Republicans demonstrate that understanding, and we will bring out for the American people exactly how things do work, not how they say they work. Yeah, we'll see what that looks like. George Santos, you're from New York, and George Santos is now facing another investigation. We're told FBI agents are looking into the role that he allegedly played in this GoFundMe scheme where this disabled veteran uh, that we had on our air talked about how they thought they were raising money for his animal. Uh, it was his dying service dog. What is your reaction to just learning about another investigation into uh, a fellow New York lawmaker of yours? Look, I, I prosecuted fraud defendants for 10 years, and I can tell you that George Santos has all of the hallmarks of those defendants. And what they, what, what I learned in doing that is there's never one lie. There's never one fraud. If someone is going to lie as pervasively as George Santos has in order to uh, have the gall to defraud the voters to get into Congress, I suspect there are plenty of other things that he has also lied about. And so we know now about this uh, GoFundMe account. We know about this Harbor City Capital Ponzi scheme that he was involved in. So I am sure What else that do you think the, he's lied about? Well, we know, I don't, I mean, uh, more and more continues to come out. And so I suspect that the DOJ is not only investigating his campaign finances, which have glaring red sirens, but also perhaps additional conduct that continues to come out, the GoFundMe, the Ponzi scheme, you know, who knows what else. Overnight, CNN reported that Hunter Biden and his attorneys want there to be investigations into a computer repair shop owner, Rudy Giuliani, other right-wing figures who they say are responsible for the dissemination of the contents of his laptop. Do you think there's legal merit for something like that based on your past uh, role as a prosecutor? Look, I, I think what you have to recognize uh, in all of this is that the person who brought the laptop to the fore was Rudy Giuliani. And this was in the aftermath of Giuliani's clear, inappropriate conduct regarding Ukraine. He was at the linchpin for Donald Trump's extortion of Ukraine. And so Rudy Giuliani at this point has no credibility. Um, and I think that that's something that we on the Oversight Committee will be looking into. Uh, according to Chairman Jim Comer, uh, they're going to be looking into Hunter Biden's laptop. But the American people don't care about Hunter Biden's laptop. They care about delivering Congress, delivering results. And so I, I, I am uh, certainly 
cognizant of the fact that we need to make sure that we're focusing on the issues that the American people care about. Don has a question for you about what's happening here, of course, uh, on Capitol Hill today. Don, uh, what did you want to ask the congressman? Oh, good, good morning, Congressman. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Look, I just want to ask you about where you stand on um, the Republicans and the committee assignments for Ilhan Omar. I would assume that you're not in support of her being removed from committees. The vote is going to be today. Yes, look, I, I'm, as, as a proud American Jew, you know, I, I'm not thrilled about the anti-Semitic comments that uh, she and many others have made. Um, but this is just clear retribution that Kevin McCarthy agreed to in order to become Speaker of the House. And when you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar being removed from their committees in a bipartisan way because they threatened violence against other members of Congress, we're talking about apples and oranges. And uh, this is just more Republican overreach, more revenge to appease the far right fringe of the party. And we, we will not stand for that on the Democratic side. I'm just wondering what kind of, how do you feel being put in that position? Because, and I just want to explain to our viewers, um, she's, they're saying they want her off these committees because of past anti-Semitic statements. She apologized in 2019 for some comments. She has since defended some of her criticisms of Israel. So as a Jewish person in Congress, I'm just wondering how you feel about that, because that has to put you in an uncomfortable position to have to defend her um, as a Jewish American. Look, I, I'm very concerned about anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism around the country. The statistics are alarming, and you have the former president sitting down to dinner with a Holocaust denier and a, a raging anti-Semite in Kanye West. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about Jewish space lasers. Uh, this is a major, major problem that we are facing, but the, uh, the uh, antidote to it is not to remove someone from a congressional committee who is selected by the other party. This is, you know, more overreach uh, that I think, and a more abuse of, of the role of the Speaker of the House. You know, the Republicans want revenge, but they always go a step too far, and this is a step too far. Thank you for answering that, Congressman. I appreciate it. And one last question for you, go. The FBI yesterday, we saw searched a third property of President Biden's when it comes to this classified documents investigation. You've weighed in on this before, saying that you believe that they are being cooperative. Do you think the White House is being transparent enough about how this investigation is progressing and what we're finding out? It's not on the White House to update the American public on a DOJ investigation. I think we've we've completely moved away from the norms that existed before Donald Trump that the White House and the Department of Justice are entirely separate. And well, what about President Biden's personal attorneys then? Because they're they've been Bob Bauer has been the one who has been uh, telling us, you know, no classified documents were found, but it was only because reporters saw these black SUVs and sedans going to Biden's Rehoboth home that we knew another search was happening yesterday. Well, I, I don't know exactly how it has happened. They have been very forthcoming about the actions that the FBI has taken. The White House has been, and, and uh, President Biden's personal lawyers have been incredibly cooperative with the department's investigation, which is in direct contrast to President Trump, who, who defied a, a grand jury subpoena to turn over documents. And I think that everybody recognizes that there's an issue with maintaining classified documents and classified settings and secured settings that now we have, you know, the 
to uh, the, the current, the former president, the former vice president. Uh, this is an issue that hopefully Congress will address. But when we're talking about the response to the issue, the we have apples and oranges between President Biden being completely cooperative and Donald Trump being completely obstructionist. Congressman Dan Goldman, a lot of topics we got to this morning. So thank you for joining Great us to have so me. much. All right, Don Poppy, back to you. Thank you, guys. So did you see it up in the sky last night? A green comet made its closest approach, approach to Earth in 50,000 so cool. years for almost as long as I've been alive. Incredible pictures. <laughs> More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Did you see this? For the first time since the Stone Age 50,000 years ago, an extremely rare glowing green comet streaking past Earth. Scientists say this comet's orbit reaches the farthest edges of the solar system, which is why it took so long to come back. Kristen Fisher is with us now. I was just saying, I can't wait to show this to the kids. It's amazing. I know. And if you were able to get outside and see this last night, it would have been really cool. But to see it, you have to really get outside of the city lights and, uh, you know, perhaps even use binoculars or a telescope. That's really what would let you see this thing in the night sky. And what you're looking at is the reason it's that green hue is because of the way uh, a molecule inside the comet is interacting with ultraviolet light from the sun. That reaction is what produces that green hue. And so as it gets closer and closer to the sun, that's how it and why it takes on that color. And so, Poppy, one of the amazing things about this comet is that it was only discovered uh, less than a year ago, last March. Um, so it's pretty new. Uh, and then just in terms of the time, Timeline. I mean, like you said, I'm regretting that I did not get up in the middle of the night and see this last night because <laughs> it will not be back for about 50,000 oh, years. Oh, man. Well, thank you for bringing it to us this morning. You bet. Thanks, Kristen. Tom Brady bowing out next hour. We're going to be looking back at his career, the career of the GOAT. We're going to speak to the man who was there in the beginning, New England Patriots owner Bob Kraft will join us ahead. And could artificial intelligence trump human intelligence and take our jobs? Which jobs is AI coming after first? If you're a middle manager, you're doomed. Good morning. Just days after an American general warned of a possible war with China, the U.S. making a provocative move overnight as fears grow over a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. The Ukrainians say the situation here is reminiscent of some of the worst times in World War II, where they're not only fighting a strong adversary, but the elements as well. CNN on the front lines in Ukraine getting an up-close look at the vicious battles ahead of the feared offensive by the Russians. President Biden on Capitol Hill this morning as he is facing a classified documents investigation and battles over the nation's economy and police reform after the death of Tyree Nichols. Lesson plans with Hitler quotes one state investigating a Nazi homeschooling network putting white supremacy into the curriculum. Hey, he's got a bird in his mouth! Baba. Damn, Baba. Is it the smoking gun? The evidence putting Alec Murdoch at the scene of the murders, contradicting his alibi. CNN This Morning starts right now. 
But we're going to begin with the breaking news out of Ukraine this morning. Our CNN crew was nearby twin missile attacks targeting the city of Krematorsk in eastern Ukraine. The renewed assault coming less than 24 hours after a missile struck a residential neighborhood in Krematorsk, killing at least three people and wounding eight. Crews are still searching through the rubble of apartment buildings, searching for survivors. We're going to get straight now to CNN's Frederick Fleiken in Ukraine for us this morning. Fred, I appreciate you joining us. I understand that you narrowly missed this heavy Russian missile strike. Tell us about what, what happened. Yeah, that well, certainly was a close call. And we were going basically to the scene of where that missile strike took place last night, the one that you just mentioned on that residential building that killed several people because, of course, there is still a big rescue operation going on there. And we had just arrived at the scene, left our vehicles, when the house in front of which our vehicle was parked was hit by a missile strike. It was a really heavy explosion, very close by, I would say maybe 40 or 50 yards from our location. So we then went uh, trying to go into shelter, trying to go into a sheltered building. And as we were doing that, I turned around and you could see the second missile hitting the exact same area. Um, we already know that there were people who were severely wounded on the ground there. It's unclear if and how many people were killed. Of course, right now there's a big rescue operation going on there. But I think it's important for our viewers to understand that this area that this was in, there was an active search and rescue operation in a residential area. And today the Russians targeted exactly the same area with two very heavy missiles. And this was uh, as there were a lot of civilians there on the street. We didn't see anybody in the way of military uh, on the streets or any sort of military installations. It was right in the heart of the town of Kramatorsk. And then, of course, uh, we uh, then decided to leave that area as fast as possible after we realized the coast was clear, Don. Can you talk to us more, Fred, because you've been on the front lines in the east. What more did you see? Mm. Yeah, you know, this is really part of, in general, this area really heating up a lot. Kramatorsk, for instance, the town I just talked about, that had been fairly quiet for a while, now getting hit by strikes. But the front lines, it's exactly the same picture. The battlefield there is heating up. We went to a trench and we saw some severe winter warfare. Here's what we witnessed. All-out winter warfare on the Eastern Front. We're in a trench with Ukrainian paratroopers. They fire on Russian positions using AKs and a U.S.-supplied Browning heavy machine gun. They're searching for weak spots in our position, says the commander, call sign Ghost. They want to see if we fight back. If we show strong resistance, though, they don't advance. And this is what strong resistance looks like. The Russians are only about 400 yards away, hidden in the snow and fog, but constantly firing at the entrenched Ukrainians. The enemy uses all kinds of weapons, Bogdan says, small arms, heavy machine guns, artillery, mortars, rocket launchers, and aviation as well. But so far, the Ukrainians say they haven't lost an inch of territory here. The Ukrainians say the situation here is reminiscent of some of the worst times in World War II, where they're not only fighting a strong adversary, but the elements as well. The snow, the mud, and the cold make fighting here even tougher. And Ukraine's leadership believes the Russians will soon escalate even more after mobilizing hundreds of thousands of men for a likely spring offensive. But this gunner, who goes by the name Deputy, says the paratroopers are ready. 
It will be hard, he says, it will be tough, but we will hold because we stand here for our land. If we don't do it, nobody will. There's a visceral hatred towards Moscow's leaders among these men. In Russia, they have a terrorist dictatorial regime, Bogdan says. So now the civilized world is fighting against this wild, medieval dictatorship. As we prepare to leave, incoming grenades explode above. Yeah, let's go. And this, the men say, is a relatively quiet day. They expect much worse in the months to come, but their motto is, if not us, who else? And we've witnessed that, Don, on several places uh, on the front line here in the east of Ukraine, that things are just heating up. The Russians apparently have put a lot more soldiers here in this area. You know, as far as that spring offensive is concerned, it certainly seems as though while this might not be that offensive just yet, it certainly very well could be the prelude to that offensive taking shape, Don. All right, Frederick Plyken, thank you. Also new this morning, the U.S. military getting expanded access to bases in the Philippines. This is part of an effort to counter China's aggression toward Taiwan. And this comes just days after an American general warned of potential war in just a few years with China. In the deal, American forces will get access to four more bases in the Philippines, giving the U.S. a greater strategic footing in the South China Sea, potentially less than 200 miles from Taiwan. Let's bring in our Mark Stewart. He joins us in Hong Kong. This is um, significant and follows a series of moves that, you know, have been made to, to shore up support around Taiwan. And indeed, Poppy, and it's also drawing a very sharp and strong response from the Chinese government. And we're hearing that in the government spokesperson in their words. I want to share with you what was said earlier today. A spokesperson warned that this move has escalated tension in the region and endangers peace and stability. Those are the exact words, very firm from a government spokesperson. To give you some context here, the U.S. has had a presence in the Philippines on its military bases since 2014. This just supplements it. But as you said, it puts American troops potentially about 200 miles south of Taiwan. And it fits a broader narrative that we have seen recently in the Pacific region. We have seen a new military base, a new marine base in in Guam, as well as a buildup, potential buildup of Marines uh, helping with the Japanese islands. All of this poppy comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken prepares to make a visit sometime soon Mm -hmm. to China. It'll be interesting to see if this dominates the conversation. What a significant visit that will be. Mark Stewart, thank you in Hong Kong for us. Caitlin. Yeah, Poppy, if you heard some helicopters buzzing overhead, maybe some sirens earlier, that's because President Biden just arrived here on Capitol Hill a few moments ago. He's attending the national prayer breakfast here. But this moment, this presence of his on Capitol Hill comes as we saw that meeting that lasted over an hour yesterday between President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House, where they were talking about something that matters to every American, which is what they are going to do with the debt ceiling. It sounds like a Washington issue, but it is certainly something that could affect so many people uh, when it comes to the economy and what it's going to look like with mortgage payments, interest rates. Our CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is here. Lauren, I think it was so fascinating to watch them going into that meeting, kind of jousting about what McCarthy was saying he would accept, the White House saying they would not accept. And then they came out and McCarthy kind of had this optimistic tone. Yeah, I think the posture was so interesting as they were leaving the meeting. And I think the intention of sort of the good, happy vibes of McCarthy coming out of that meeting was to settle the markets a little bit, to make it clear we are working, we are talking. 
I'm optimistic that at some point we could find a resolution, but let's be honest, that resolution is months away. Caitlin, there is so much work that still has to happen. And you're starting to see on Capitol Hill some of McCarthy's rank and file members getting a little frustrated. This came out yesterday during the conference meeting that there aren't more specifics coming from leadership. Here are the cuts that we're eyeing. Here are the areas where we think we can make changes to try and move this negotiation along. The Republican Study Committee that includes uh, more than 100 Republican members, they came out with their own guidelines yesterday because they feel like leadership still is not taking the wheel and making it clear what specifically they're going to cut. Of course, there's a political liability to laying out exactly where you want to make those reductions. I think the White House is like, yeah, let us know where those cuts are because (laughs) it opens them up to attacks on that. Is the reason that they're frustrated because they need to know what they should be saying publicly? I mean, we've asked, you know, we just had Rick Scott on, which he's a, a senator, but where specifically do you want these cuts to come from? And no no Republicans are really saying exactly what that would look like. Yeah, and I mean, Rick Scott is so interesting, right? Because he did lay out some spending cuts and a plan for that. And the rest of his party was looking at him like, what are you doing? Why are you saying publicly all of this right before an election? It's always an election season in Washington. And I think what Republicans are really grappling with right now is those who are the hardliners, who are conservatives, who believe they have an opportunity to make a stand on this issue, and the reality of even if you want to make cuts, every lawmaker is going to have to turn around to their constituents in their district and say, okay, cuts mean that a bridge isn't going to get built or something isn't going to happen. And that is really hard for lawmakers to stare down as they know they are running for re-election. One other thing happening here on the Hill today is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is expected to not be allowed to be on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That isn't something where it seemed like maybe Republicans would not have the votes. It seemed unclear. Do they now have the votes? Is this going to happen today? Yeah, it's going to happen. But I do think it's significant that it took so long to lock down the votes they needed. This is part of the process. If you talk to leaders, they say this is the blessing of having a diverse Republican conference. It sometimes takes longer, but we are still getting to the same resolution. McCarthy defending, ousting Omar from this committee assignment, saying that she can serve on other committees, but not this one. Yeah, but of course, this one is a critically important one as well. Lauren Fox, great reporting. Thank you so much for joining us. Don Poppy. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. A new study that followed more than 2 million women who gave birth between 1973 and 2015 finds certain complications during pregnancy could be linked to a higher risk of heart disease in the mother. So let's bring in CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Talk to us about this because you were actually quoted in the CNN.com piece about this. And I thought it was so interesting that you said being pregnant is sort of like a stress test for future cardiovascular risk. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cardiologist. I help run our uh, women's heart program here at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. And this is so, so important. You know, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of maternal mortality. And what happens during pregnancy can really predict your future risk. And so many women are unaware of this. So this study, which was a big study, they took over 2 million women and followed them between 1973 and 2015. These women had no history of ischemic heart disease, and they looked uh, to see when they had their first birth and then what kinds of complications happened during those births. And they looked at five particular ones, preeclampsia, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, early preterm delivery before 37 weeks, babies that were small for gestational age and, and gestational diabetes. And then they followed them over a long period of time to see What kind of events did they have? Did they develop ischemic heart disease? And they found that those particular complications during pregnancy really raised the future risk of developing ischemic heart disease 
out to 40 years and even within 10 years. So if you look at hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, it doubled a woman's risk within 10 Mm. years of developing ischemic heart disease. Gestational diabetes, 30% higher. Uh, Preterm delivery, something we don't often think of, 70% increased chance of ischemic heart disease in 10 years. So yes, it is like a stress test. Um, It's kind of under either uncovering underlying issues that a woman may have, uh, helping predict, or it's actually changing the biology of the heart and the vessels and causing these events down the road. So women in the United States more at risk, right? Why is that? So, I mean, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death for all women. And as I said, a leading cause of maternal mortality. And there are potentially a lot of reasons. Women here are tending to give birth later in life. So the average age in this study was about 27. And many of them by that time have developed things like depression, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. And so one of the things we talk about is that having a healthy delivery starts preconception. So a woman needs to get her body and her health in as best shape possible as she can before. We also talk about the fact how in this country we have high rates of maternal mortality in general. And so what happens to a woman after she delivers? Unfortunately, what I see and what many cardiologists see is that they may have one of these events during pregnancy and then nobody tells them that they're at increased risk. Nobody plugs them in with a cardiologist so they never get followed up. They never get screened and they never get put on the road to prevention. And that's so much of what cardiology is. It's finding things early Mm -hmm. so you can prevent events from happening. So this is important to raise awareness both for women and OBGYNs and other doctors that this is a great moment in time to capture a woman and get her on the right road. I mean, what a tragedy. You have a new life, a new baby, and then and the mom could die. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is just heartbreaking, and it's not necessary that it happens like this in this and country. tomorrow we have, speaking of women. Yes, my favorite day of the year, which is Wear Red Day. Yeah. Um, this is, again, the beginning of Heart Month where we focus on women and heart disease, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So hopefully we will talk a lot more about that. Right. We'll be in red. Yes, Thank you. we'll be wearing red. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate it. The FBI is searching President Biden's Delaware Beach home, finding no classified documents. But why did they take some handwritten notes and other materials? We'll discuss that next. And the GOAT, Tom Brady, retiring after 23 seasons and seven Super Bowl rings. Six of those, of course, he won as a New England Patriot. The owner of the Patriots, Bob Kraft, what? is with us next. What? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We're live on Capitol Hill as President Biden is already here. He's got a national prayer breakfast that he is attending. But of course, this comes at a moment for the president where he was holding meetings on the debt ceiling yesterday. But also we learned that the FBI was also conducting a search of his Delaware Beach home. That comes after his personal attorney, Bob Bauer, said in a statement later that that search had uncovered no documents that had classified markings. He did say agents took some handwritten notes and some materials for further review related to Biden's time as vice president. This is the third private location that agents have searched in this investigation. Joining us now to talk about this is the author of The President's Book of Secrets, which is about interactions between presidents and classified intelligence information. Former CIA intelligence officer David Priest, who is also the publisher and chief operating officer at the National Security Analyst website Lawfare. Thank you so much. I mean, you're kind of the perfect person to be talking about this with. And we we learned that the FBI was at Biden's home, and then we got the confirmation from his attorneys yesterday. What was the first thing that went through your head? Oh, why they're searching a third property? It felt like Groundhog Day, honestly, just a day early. It is Groundhog right. Day. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> site after site, again and again, it's classified documents here, there, everywhere. And then we found out, well, not quite everywhere, right? At least at this location, we're not finding them. That tells us two interesting things. 
Uh, first of all, that the, the Biden team is cooperating and is doing these without warrants, so that's worth noting. But secondly, that it's enough of a concern that other properties are being looked at, voluntarily or not, which makes me wonder about other properties of past presidents, past vice presidents, and other senior officials who had access to classified so you think material. you could see other properties be searched? I, I think we could. I think it would be the reasonable thing to do at this point because we've discovered we do have a consistent issue with at least recent administrations with commingling some of this material going out. And it's serious material, so it's worth looking at the sites just to make sure that the material is all put back into the system the way it is supposed to be and not left out there. And they said no classified documents were found, but they did take some handwritten notes that they said were related to his time as vice president. Why would that be of interest to the investigators? Well, it, what I think the Bob Bauer letter said was no material with classified markings was found. Mm -hmm. So that would be an official document that, that says secret at the top and bottom, that kind of thing. But there can be material that's classified that was improperly marked. It's possible. So for example, a high-level conversation with a foreign leader. There could be notes from that meeting that deal with matters that have been classified by the US government, but they weren't marked in the traditional way. So they're probably just double-checking to see if that's the case. This points to a much larger issue when it comes to White House in particular meetings, which is conversations can be held that seem unclassified, but depending on the content of the conversation as it goes along, those conversations can be classified and those notes can become classified. So you wonder why it is that archivists have a hard time determining what's a presidential record and not in the chaotic months during the transition. This is why, because thousands of papers yeah, it's not have this, to be gone through. this black and white issue. And something that stood out to me, and I know it stood out to you as well, something the House Oversight Chairman James Comer said about the process of classified documents, what that looks like. This is what he said. One of the things that I hope happens and there's no hurry on this right now. This just needs to happen prior to this administration going out of office and before the next administration comes into office. We have to reform the way that documents are boxed up when they leave the president and vice president's office and follow them into the private sector. And this is something I think will be a bipartisan legislative fix. I think we all agree there's a problem. What do you quite, make of that? He's quite right about the latter part, that there is a need for reform here. When we've seen that the past two former vice presidents, Biden and Pence, and the past former president, Trump, at least have this materials issue, then there's a problem in the system. So he's right about that. He's quite wrong about the fact that there's no hurry, because it is possible we could have a transition as soon as next year. There's no time to wait if you want to reform this. Archivists don't grow on trees. You have to find them, you have to recruit them, you have to hire them, you have to train them for this kind of work. That's not something that they can delay until next year and hope that it all comes together by November or December if that happens to be an issue by then. Yeah, fascinating insight. Yeah. David Priest, thank you so much thank for you. that. Thank you. Don Poppy. That was really good insight. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. We are very excited about what is next. Tom Brady spent 20 years with the New England Patriots and he and Bob Kraft won six Super Bowls together, so there is literally no better human on this planet to ask about Brady's legacy than the man himself. Mr. Kraft will join us Hey, next. Bob, see you after the break. <laughs> anything that really scares you, anything that intimidates you? The end of my playing career. Big time. And when I'm playing football during those seven months out of the year, it's easy. You're focused. 
you know, you, you've got a goal, you've got something you're trying to accomplish. And when that's done, you don't have 80,000 people screaming your name. I mean, what's it going to be? He's wow. a baby. That was baby Brady. That was back in time, baby Tom Brady back in 2005, reflecting on what the end of his career could look like. Well, here we are. 23 seasons in the NFL, 20 of them in New England. He won six of his seven Super Bowl rings while he was with the Patriots. Few people had a better advantage point uh, on Brady's astonishing career than the owner of the Patriots, Mr. Robert Kraft, and he joins us now. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Good morning. Great to be with you on this topic. Hey, thank, Bob, have you spoken to Tom? It, actually, I, uh, we, we've talked a lot, and uh, he, he FaceTimed me yesterday. Not Nothing about this, just, you know, it was the first day, and... Um, he had his two younger children with him, and uh, he really seemed happy, and they were happy. And I, I loved it because his little daughter said, well, both of those kids, they call me RKK. <laughs> and they say, we miss you. We haven't seen you. And it was, and, you know, it's just Tommy, he's a fierce competitor, but he brings love and uh, a great warm feeling to everything he does. And I, here he is in his house in a time like this, and his kids are exuding love to someone else and warm feelings. And that's what he did and does, even in the huddle, as fierce as a competitor as he is, he gets people to come in to be connected as part of the team and feel very special. Just with that, I mean, we could end the interview there, but we, we told our viewers no one had more insight than well, Bob Kraft, right? And also, you know, for our viewers who might not know, you really loved him like a son. That's how you've described the relationship between the two of you guys, right? And I wonder if you can take us into, because remember, he was the, you're the owner of the Patriots. You guys draft him. He's the 199th draft pick. And then look what he turns out to be and look what he does for the franchise. Yeah, I think um, the good thing for us as the Patriots is when he played at Michigan, I don't think they realized how special he was in, uh, because he should have been the number one pick in the draft, not 199 in the sixth round. And um, when he came into us, you know, I never, I'll share a story. Um, it was near the end of training camp and I was driving out and he was coming down the steps of our little building and um, he had a pizza under his arm from the food service and he came up to me and said, hi, I'm Tom Brady. Uh, I said, I know who you are. You're a six round draft pick from Michigan. <laughs> and he looked me in the eye and he said, I'm the best choice your franchise, I'm the best decision your franchise has ever made. Mm. And I looked him in the eye and, you know, he just said it in a way. Now, you, you got to understand, we just gave a hundred million, the biggest contract to any quarterback to Drew Bledsoe, 
uh, just before this, a few months before, and he was number four in our depth chart. He came down and he really believed what he said. Mm -hmm. He certainly did. And he was right. That's, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going uh, to say that. Bob, are you, um, did you want him to retire this before? Did you think he should have come back this past season? You know, there are certain decisions in life that um, I always believe in giving counsel and trying to be supportive, but only an individual on his own can make a decision like that. They can ask. No one knows the different pressures, what alternatives are open to them in this game, how their body feels physically, um, whether there's something that's dysfunctional that won't allow them to perform the way they want. Because in the end, the real competitors in this game are playing to win every week. Mm. And if something's dysfunctional in their body, you know, that can take away from it. You know, we're a little bit two week, less than two weeks away from the big game, Super Bowl. You guys got six Super Bowl rings together. I wonder... Was it Brady? Was it Belichick? Who was more responsible, do you think, for all those Super Bowl wins? Well, um, when we, this is our 29th season we just completed. Yeah. And we were privileged to go to 10 Super Bowls uh, and win six of them. Um, and what I learned is... Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things. It's, it's probably the sport of football and winning in it requires team effort like nothing else, which is so important for our society. And you need great stars like Belichick and Brady. But you need a lot of other people pulling in the same direction. In the end, though, to answer your question, you can't win if you don't have a good coach and a good quarterback. Amen. I was blessed to have both of that. Mm -hmm. Probably the best in the history of the game. You know, I think back whether there, there's over 25,000 or 30,000 players who played football. How lucky are we up here in New England to have the greatest that's ever played? And really play for us for 20% of the history of the league mm. in a hundred odd years. I don't think there are too many quarterbacks that have played for one team. Yeah. Bob, you're so right about having um, a great coach. And, and then, you know, he, Tom needed good people around him. We talked to uh, yesterday mm -hmm. to John Berman, who's a, you know, Tom Brady super fan. He said he just didn't have the support that he had around him when he was with you guys. My question though is, are there any plans, Bob, to make sure that he retires? Are you going to sign him to a one-day contract? Do you want him back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to retire a patriot. i do it tomorrow. For him uh, to retire a patriot oh, is the absolutely. question. Not, not only do I want it, our fans are clamoring for it. And to us, he is always has been and always will be a patriot. And we will be bringing him back um, after I have not, I don't like to make a commitment for him, but 
we will do everything in our power to bring him back, have him sign off as a patriot, nice. and find ways to honor him for many years to come because he did so much to bring life and good cheer to our community. And he's a beloved figure, and he's earned the respect and love that people feel for him like no other athlete in our town. And we've had some great ones. Yeah. You think it's fair, Poppy, to call that breaking news? I mean, Bob. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's so nice to get to hear from you, Bob, this morning. Hey, Bob, before we, before we go, yeah. though, I mean, it, look, he's like a son. So, while well, you have this audience here on CNN, I know you're – you're going to miss him. I know you missed him when he left the Patriots, but you still were in contact, contact with him. You love his family. What are your parting words? Because I know you love him like a son. Well, Tommy, I'm always here for you. You're, you are part of our family. Um, you know, and part of he was blessed having great parents. His mom and dad are super people. He's got three great sisters. And I was thinking about it. He was the baby, you know. And so to have four great women like that and then a role model, and for him not to be super spoiled, I don't know how it happened, <laughs> you know, out there in California area where everything is a little different than it is here in the <laughs> Northeast. He just, <laughs> we, 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 I tell you, I just love the guy so much, and there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. And I think he can do a lot of good things for America and reach out to a lot of people. And thank you for the time you gave us. And everyone here in the New England region loves you and respects you and wants happiness for you in your life. So... So nice. Well said. Bob Kraft, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you. Be well. Thanks, Poppy. Thanks, Don. Right. Great to talk to you both. Thank you. Too. That was great. I know. That was pretty awesome. I mean, do, should we even talk? We'll be right back. That was awesome. That's all we'll say. <laughs> This morning, recent innovations like chat, GPT, and other artificial intelligence tools appear to be able to do a lot of what we humans can do. And faster, like AI doesn't sleep, right? That means some workers will ultimately be displaced when this technology takes over their roles. Experts say it also means many brand new employment opportunities. Our Vanessa Yurkevich is tracking all of this. Good morning. Good morning. So listen, we all saw ChatGBT explode onto the scene in the last couple months. People were really intrigued by it, thought, wow, this could help me at work. That quickly turned to, wait a minute, can this platform, this AI platform, do my job better than I can? So a lot of Americans are asking, is artificial intelligence here to help me or take my job? Which jobs is AI coming after first? If you're a middle manager, you're doomed. Any kind of commodity salesperson, report writers and journalists, accountants and bookkeepers, and oddly enough, doctors who are looking, uh, who specialize in things like drug interactions. Do you mean out of a job? No. Or you mean that part of your job? That part. Okay. That's the relief a lot of Americans are looking for right now. The explosion of ChatGPT, an AI platform, showed us it could do a lot of what we humans do at work and faster. Will it 
take my job? Yes and no. It's not going to replace you. Someone who knows how to use it well is going to take your job, and that's a guarantee. By 2025, the World Economic Forum predicts that 85 million jobs will be displaced by automation and technology, but it will also create 97 million new roles. We've seen it before in the auto industry. While the auto worker may be displaced because they are not as good at welding or as painting as the robot, there's probably 35 people that have to be involved in the creation and maintenance of that device that welds better than a person. And that's what happened at Carbon Robotics. Former auto workers now building an AI laser weeder in Detroit for farms. It's a direct result of the history of auto manufacturing that we have that skill set available to us all in one place. The laser weeder, still operated by a human but run by AI, can do the work of between 40 to 80 people, says the CEO, filling roles that are hard to find humans for. Labor is harder and harder to find every year, particularly farm labor. And an AI system like ours that can do that job automatically saves a lot of time, money, effort. This music is composed solely by artificial intelligence called Ava. It even has an album you can stream. AI music is more affordable. There's no producer, composer, or artist to pay. It's taken away opportunity from songwriters, producers, and artists, right? So the people are trying to feed them for their families. Something similar is happening in the art world, leading artists Kara Ortiz and two others to file a class action lawsuit against three AI art companies for copyright infringement. Ortiz claims they're using her name and art to train the AI. It's feast and famine for most of us. We go job by job. And what happens when there's a little bit less work to go around? Stability AI, one of the companies named, says the suit misunderstands how AI and copyright law work, adding it intends to, quote, defend ourselves and the vast potential generative AI has to expand the creative power of humanity. The two other companies did not respond. I never thought we'd be here. It's like straight out of a sci-fi movie. My father tried to teach me human emotions. There's a wonderful scene in the movie, I, Robot. Detective Spooner hates robots. He says, can a robot write a symphony? Can a robot turn a canvas into a beautiful masterpiece? And the robot looks up and he goes, can you? Every one of us is not Mozart or Rembrandt or Picasso or choose your super famous, amazing artist or artisan. We're just people. This is not coming to kill us. It's coming to help us. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen iRobot, what ends up happening is the robots, the artificial intelligence ends up working with the humans to save humanity. And that's what a lot of AI experts think is going to happen. We're going to be working with artificial intelligence. And since I gave you at the top, the top five jobs AI is coming after first, here's the top five jobs quickly that AI is coming oh after last, last, preschool, last. elementary school teacher, professional athlete, politician, judge and mental health professional. That is because these jobs sure. really need the human element, judgment, emotion, a preschool teacher giving a child a hug at the end of the day. So listen, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> they oh, I know. The Get ready. Get ready. We love these it's, uh, it's series coming, you're doing. Thank so you. Thank it's coming you. for all of us, but people are saying embrace it. It's better that it saved humanity. It wasn't like 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. Now, Your favorite like, movie. Yeah, he's like, uh, I cannot later. do yeah. that. Sorry. <laughs> thank you, right. Vanessa. Thank you. Thanks.
All right. Well, outraging Ohio over a Nazi homeschooling network reportedly using Hitler quotes as an educational resource. We'll tell you about that. Welcome back, everyone. So new this morning, Ohio's Education Department is investigating an alleged Nazi homeschooling network that reportedly distributed lesson plans with writing exercises based on Hitler quotes. To explain, Omar Jimenez is here. Do tell. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Now, for starters, the state education official told me the Ohio Department of Education is basically re- reviewing compliance with statutory and regulatory uh, policies in this state because it's not clear how much they can actually do about the curriculum of homeschooling. Now, I want to show you an example. This is a group that they believe operates out of Upper Sandusky, Ohio. And this is an example of a Thanksgiving copyworking uh, assignment where basically, you know, you're learning handwriting, elementary school age, and they're using Hitler quotes to learn that handwriting. Uh, you know, this is a group that doesn't hide being pro-Nazi, white supremacist, homophobic. Honestly, you name it. It's probably there. I want to show another lesson that was posted, quote, lesson leading up to Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This was by a user named Mrs. Saxon. She wrote, it is up to us to ensure our children know him, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for the deceitful, dishonest, riot-inducing Negro he actually was. He is the face of a movement which ethnically cleansed whites out of urban areas and precipitated the anti-white regime that we are now fighting to free ourselves from. And in bold and underlined under that, she wrote, this is a lesson for elementary age wow. children. I wonder how the local school district is responding, but also because it's homeschooling, they do have to be like certified to be able to get the credits, right? I just wonder right. what they can do, if anything, to stop this. Basically, there's an, there's an annual check sort of to show that you are teaching. Now, right. what you are teaching is sort of out of their purview. And really? sort of the, the upper Sandusky school district superintendent basically said, this is egregious, these teachings, we don't support it, but also said as part of his statement, parents are responsible for choosing the curriculum in homeschooling and the course of study. Yeah. The parents' chosen curriculum is not sponsored or endorsed by the district. Wow. The group's got more than 3,000 subscribers. Really? And, you know, we tried to reach out to the owners. I didn't get a response. Uh, maybe no surprise there, but obviously something that the state is, is paying close attention to. Oh, boy. Yeah. Thank you, Thank Omar. You, Omar. Good to see you. Uh, Kate, we're going to go back to D.C. Caitlin. <laughs> you know, I just want to highlight this moment that just happened uh, during the National Prayer Breakfast over here on Capitol Hill. President Biden was attending. It's a tradition for presidents to attend. He was talking about how norms have changed, you know, not just here on the Hill and in Washington, but broadly across uh, the United States and America, talking about how Americans treat one each other saying don't see each other as competitors and whatnot. And he had this interesting remark about Kevin McCarthy. We're going to show you that. That's next. Let's start treating each other with respect. That's what Kevin and I are going to do. Not a joke. We had a good meeting yesterday. I think we got to do it across the board. Doesn't mean we're going to agree and fight like hell. But let's treat each other with respect. Bit of an olive, olive branch there from President Biden to Kevin McCarthy after they had that meeting that lasted over an hour at the White House. You know, Donna Poppy, it was a meeting where the expectation of what 
was going to happen, and it wasn't very high. But you saw Kevin McCarthy walk out. He spoke to reporters out in front of the West Wing yesterday, striking a much more optimistic tone, saying that the meeting went better than he expected it to go, that they that they found some common ground. But I still think there are major questions about what that path forward is going to look like. But this is kind of a popular refrain that we've heard from President Biden saying that, you know, when he was on Capitol Hill, he believed lawmakers would argue with one another on the Senate floor or whatnot, maybe the House floor. And then they'd go and break bread, have lunch and would put their differences aside. He was saying essentially lamenting that that does not happen anymore in his view. Yeah, I, I commented earlier um, in the I think it was like at the top of the show when Kevin McCarthy walked out, he said, the conversation that I had with the president of the United States, I'm going to keep confidence yeah. and we're going to keep. And I noticed it even without the president saying it this That's morning, good. it was palpable. You, I, I got I was like, wow, something is different about what. Yeah, civility might be gone, but it can come back. Right. Hopefully that time is now. Caitlin, thank you. <laughs> see you here tomorrow. See you guys. I'll see you guys Monday. CNN Newsroom. <laughs> Have a good vacation. CNN Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash Country. Max subscription required.